Section 5 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 24. The Failure of Fremont. Lincoln's First Difficulties with McClellan. The Death of Willie Lincoln. Part 1. The most popular military appointment Lincoln made before McClellan was that of John C. Fremont to the command of the Department of the West. Republicans appreciated it, for had not Fremont been the first candidate of their party for the presidency? The West was jubilant. Fremont's explorations had, years before, made him the hero of the land along the Mississippi. The cabinet was satisfied, particularly Postmaster General Blair, whose pet and protege Fremont was. Lincoln himself thought well of Fremont, believed he could do the work to be done, and he had already had experience enough to discern that his great trouble was to be not finding major generals. He had more pegs than holes to put them in, he said one day, but finding major generals who could do the thing they were ordered to do. Fremont had gone to his headquarters at St. Louis, Missouri, late in July. Before a month had passed, the gravest charges of incompetency and neglect of duty were being made against him. It was even intimated to the president that the general was using his position to work up a northwestern confederacy. Mr. Lincoln had listened to all these charges, but taken no action, when, on the morning of August 30th, he was amazed to read it in his newspaper that Fremont had issued a proclamation declaring, among other things, that the property, real and personal, of all the persons in the state of Missouri who should take up arms against the United States, or who should be directly proved to have taken an active part with its enemies in the field, would be confiscated to public use, and their slaves, if they had any, declared freemen. Fremont's proclamation astonished the country as much as it did the president. In the North, it elicited almost universal satisfaction. This was striking at the root of the trouble, slavery. But in the border states, particularly in Kentucky, the Union Party was dismayed. The only possible method of keeping those sections in the Union was not to interfere with slavery. Mr. Lincoln saw this as clearly as his border state supporters it was well known that this was his policy. He felt that Fremont had not only defied the policy of the administration, he had usurped power which belonged only to the legislative part of the government. He had a good excuse for reprimanding the general, even for removing him. Instead, he wrote him on September 2nd a most kindly letter. I think there is great danger that the closing paragraph of the proclamation in relation to the confiscation of property and the liberating slaves of traitorous owners will alarm our Southern Union friends and turn them against us, perhaps ruin our rather fair prospect for Kentucky. Allow me, therefore, to ask that you will, as of your own motion, modify that paragraph so as to conform to the first and fourth sections of the act of congress entitled an act to confiscate property used for insurrectionary purposes approved august sixth eighteen sixty one and a copy of which act i herewith send you this letter is written in a spirit of caution and not of censure i send it by special messenger in order that it may certainly and speedily reach you but lincoln did more than this Without waiting for Fremont's reply to the above, he went over carefully all the criticisms on the general's administration, in order to see if he could help him. 
his conclusion was that fremont was isolating himself too much from men who were interested in the same cause and so did not know what was going on in the very matter he was dealing with that mr lincoln hit the very root of fremont's difficulty is evident from the testimony of the men who were with the general in missouri at the time general george e layton of st louis who became provost marshal of the city in the fall of eighteen sixty one says fremont isolated himself and unlike grant halleck and others of like rank was unapproachable when halleck came here to assume command and called on fremont he was accompanied simply by a member of his staff but when fremont returned the call he rode down with great pomp and ceremony escorted by his staff and bodyguard of one hundred men general b g farrar recounts his experience in trying to get an important message to fremont from general lyon who was at springfield with an insufficient force word was returned to me that general fremont was very busy and that he could not receive the dispatch then and requested me to call in the afternoon i called in the afternoon and was again told that general fremont was very busy three days passed before i succeeded in obtaining an audience with fremont as commander of the department fremont assumed all the prerogatives of an absolute ruler the approach to his headquarters was through a long line of guards there were guards at the corners of the streets guards at the gate guards at the door guards at the entrance to the adjutant-general's office and a whole regiment of troops in the barracks adjacent to his headquarters i saw his order making colonel harding of the home guard a brigadier-general this was done without consultation with the president and without authority of law the czar of russia could hardly be more absolute in his authority than fremont assumed to be at st louis fremont never asked washington for authority to do a thing while at st louis fremont visited nobody so far as i know when he went forth from his headquarters at all he went under the escort of his bodyguard and a staff brilliantly uniformed when he removed his headquarters to jefferson city he went on a special train with all the trappings and surroundings of a royal potentate having made up his mind what fremont's fault was lincoln asked general david hunter to go to missouri he fremont needs to have at his side a man of large experience he wrote to hunter will you not for me take that place your rank is one grade too high to be ordered to it but will you not serve the country and oblige me by taking it voluntarily at the same time that hunter was asked to go to fremont's relief postmaster-general blair went to st louis with the president's approbation to talk with the general as a friend in the meantime lincoln's letter of september second had reached fremont after a few days the general replied that he wished the president himself would make the general order modifying the clause of the proclamation which referred to the liberation of slaves this letter he sent by his wife jessie benton fremont a woman of ambition and great energy of character while fremont was in command of the department mrs fremont was the real chief of staff says colonel george f layton she was a woman of strong personality having inherited much of the brains and force of character which distinguished her father senator benton mrs fremont was much like her father says judge clover of st louis she was intellectual and possessed great force of will 
she started east deeply indignant that mr lincoln should ask her husband to modify his proclamation when she reached washington she learned that mr blair had gone to st louis jumping to the conclusion that it was with an order to remove her husband she hastened to mr lincoln it was midnight but the president gave her an audience without waiting for an explanation she violently charged him with sending an enemy to missouri to look into fremont's case and threatening that if fremont desired to he could set up a government for himself i had to exercise all the rude tact i have to avoid quarrelling with her said mr lincoln afterwards the day after this interview lincoln sent the order modifying the clause as fremont had requested when this was made public a perfect storm of denunciation broke over the president the whole north felt outraged there was talk of impeaching lincoln and of replacing him with fremont great newspapers criticized his action warning him to learn whither he was tending influential men in all professions spoke bitterly of his action how many times wrote james russell lowell to miss norton are we to save kentucky and lose our self-respect the hardest of these criticisms for lincoln to bear were those from his old friends in illinois nearly all of whom supported fremont the general supposition throughout the country at this time was that the president would remove fremont he however had no idea of dismissing the general on the ground of the proclamation and he hoped as he wrote to senator browning that no real necessity existed for it on any ground the hope was vain disasters to the union army the evident result of the general's inefficiency and positive proofs of corruption in the management of the financial affairs of the department multiplied in spite of expostulations and threats from fremont's supporters lincoln decided to remove him but he would not do it without giving him a last chance in sending the order for his removal and the appointment of general hunter to his place he directed that it was not to be delivered if there was any evidence that fremont had fought or was about to fight a battle it was not only lincoln's sense of justice which led him to give a last chance to fremont it was a part of that far-seeing political wisdom of his not to displace men until they themselves had demonstrated their unfitness so clearly that even their friends must finally agree that he had done right it was generally believed in missouri that fremont had decided to receive no bearer of dispatches so that if the president did remove him he could say that he had never been informed of the fact general curtis to whom lincoln forwarded his order by his friend leonard sweat knowing this sent copies by three separate messengers to fremont's headquarters the one who delivered it first was general t i mckenney now of olympia washington his story written out for this work is good evidence of the past to which things had come in fremont's department about three o'clock at night on october twenty seventh eighteen sixty one i think it was i was awakened by a messenger stating that general curtis desired to see me at his headquarters i found leonard sweat there with the general who informed me that he had an important message from the president to be taken to general fremont then in the field it not being known where i was shown the order that i was to convey that general fremont was relieved of his command of the department of the west and general hunter placed temporarily in his stead aside from this i had special instructions which i understood were mr lincoln's own first 
if general fremont had fought and gained a decided victory not a mere skirmish then not to deliver the message second if he was in the immediate presence of the enemy and about to begin a battle not to deliver it third if neither of these conditions prevailed to deliver it and to make it known immediately as it was thought that he was determined to receive no orders superseding him i immediately went to st louis waked up a second-hand dealer in clothing and fitted myself out as a southern planter and then took the train for rolla missouri there i secured horses and a guide and about two o'clock at night rode rapidly south in the direction of springfield missouri where i expected to find fremont i rode this distance principally in the night passing through the small rebel towns at a very rapid gait about one hundred seventeen miles from rolla i reached the outer cordon of fremont's pickets here i had difficulty getting through the lines as the instructions to the guard were very stringent when i finally got in there being no immediate prospects of a battle i straightway made my way to fremont's headquarters where i met the officer of the day who told me that i could not see general fremont but that he would introduce me to his chief of staff colonel eaton the latter also told me that i could not see the general but if i would make my business known to him that he would communicate it to fremont this i positively refused to do he returned to fremont and communicated what i had said but it had no effect late in the evening however i was hunted up by colonel eaton who took me to general fremont's office the general was sitting at the end of quite a long table facing the door by which i entered i never can forget the appearance of the man as he sat there with his piercing eye and his hair parted in the middle i ripped from my coat lining the document which had been sewed in there and handed the same to him which he nervously took and opened he glanced at the superscription and then at the signature at the bottom not looking at the contents a frown came over his brow and he slammed the paper down on the table and said sir how did you get admission into my lines i told him that i had come in as a messenger bearing information from the rebel lines he waved me out saying that will do for the present i had orders to make the contents of the document known as soon as delivered the first man i met was general sturgis to whom i gave the information i was then overtaken by the chief of staff eaton who said that general fremont was much disappointed with the communication as he had thought that i had information from the rebel forces and that he requested me not to make the message known for the present i then told colonel eaton that i had important dispatches for general hunter and would like transportation and a guide and he remarked that he would consult general fremont on the subject he soon returned with the information that fremont did not know where general hunter was and refused to give me any transportation saying that he had been relieved and had no authority to do so i then went to a self-styled colonel richardson who had a kind of marauding company having been mustered into neither the united states service nor the state service i gave him to understand that i would use my influence to have him regularly mustered into the service whereupon he furnished me with a good horse and a pretended guide i could get no information in regard to hunter but there was a rumor that he was making towards springfield and was in the region of a place called buffalo i therefore started out about eleven o'clock at night on the buffalo road and after great difficulty reached the town about daylight but i could hear nothing of general hunter 
I left my guide and started out on the road to Bolivar. I had not proceeded more than twelve or fifteen miles before I heard the rattling of horses' hoofs in my rear. I stopped to await their arrival and found that they were a small detachment of hunters' troops to inform me that the general had just arrived in Buffalo, whereupon I retraced my steps and delivered my message. General Hunter immediately started for Springfield in a four-mule ambulance. Arriving, he issued a short proclamation assuming command. It was thought by some that this would produce a mutiny among the foreign element. It did not. It was not in the West alone that the President was suffering disappointment. At the time when Fremont received the order retiring him, McClellan had been in command of the Army of the Potomac for over three months. His force had been increased until it numbered over 168,000 men. He had given night and day to organizing and drilling this army, and it seemed to those who watched him that he now had a force as near ready for battle as an army could be made ready by anything save actual fighting. Mr. Lincoln had fully sympathized with his young general's desire to prepare the Army of the Potomac for the field, and he had given him repeated proofs of his support. McClellan, however, seems to have felt from the first that Mr. Lincoln's kindness was merely a personal recognition of his own military genius. He had conceived the idea that it was he alone who was to save the country. The people call upon me to save the country, he wrote to his wife. I must save it, and cannot respect anything that is in the way. The President's suggestions, when they did not agree with his own ideas, he regarded as an interference. Thus he imagined that the enemy had three or four times his force, and when the President doubted this, he complained, The President cannot or will not see the true state of affairs. Lincoln, in his anxiety to know the details of the work in the army, went frequently to McClellan's headquarters. That the President had a serious purpose in these visits, McClellan did not see. I enclose a card just received from A. Lincoln, he wrote to his wife one day. It shows too much deference to be seen outside. In another letter to Mrs. McClellan, he spoke of being interrupted by the President and Secretary Seward, who had nothing in particular to say, and again of concealing himself, to dodge all enemies in shape of browsing presidents, etc., his plans he kept to himself, and when at the cabinet meetings, to which he was constantly summoned, military matters were discussed, he seemed to feel that it was an encroachment on his special business. I am becoming daily more disgusted with this administration, perfectly sick of it, he wrote early in October, and a few days later, I was obliged to attend a meeting of the cabinet at 8 p.m. and was bored and annoyed. These are some of the greatest geese in the cabinet I have ever seen, enough to tax the patience of Job. As time went on, he began to show plainly his contempt of the president, frequently allowing him to wait in the anteroom of his house while he transacted business with others. This discourtesy was so open that McClellan's staff noticed it, and newspaper correspondents commented on it. The president was too keen not to see the situation, but he was strong enough to ignore it. It was a battle he wanted from McClellan, not deference. I will hold McClellan's horse if he will only bring us success, he said one day. 
while there was a pretty general disposition at first to give mcclellan time to organize before the first three months were up lincoln was receiving impatient comments on the inactivity of the army this impatience became anger and dismay when on october twenty first the battle of ball's bluff ended in defeat to mr lincoln ball's bluff was more than a military reverse by it he suffered a terrible personal loss in the death of one of his oldest and dearest friends colonel e d baker mr c c coffin who was at mcclellan's headquarters when lincoln received the news of his friend's death tells of the scene the afternoon was lovely a rare october day i learned early in the day that something was going on up the potomac near edwards ferry by the troops under general banks what was going on there no one knew even at mcclellan's headquarters it was near sunset when accompanied by a fellow correspondent i went to ascertain what was taking place we entered the anteroom and sent our cards to general mcclellan while we waited president lincoln came in he recognized us reached out his hand spoke of the beauty of the afternoon while waiting for the return of the young lieutenant who had gone to announce his arrival the lines were deeper in the president's face than when i saw him in his own home the cheeks more sunken they had lines of care and anxiety for eighteen months he had borne a burden such as has fallen upon few men a burden as weighty as that which rested upon the great lawgiver of israel please to walk this way said the lieutenant we could hear the click of the telegraph in the adjoining room and low conversation between the president and general mcclellan succeeded by silence excepting the click click of the instrument which went on with its tale of disaster five minutes passed and then mr lincoln unattended with bowed head and tears rolling down his furrowed cheeks his face pale and wan his breast heaving with emotion passed through the room he almost fell as he stepped into the street we sprang involuntarily from our seats to render assistance but he did not fall with both hands pressed upon his heart he walked down the street not returning the salute of the sentinel pacing his beat before the door general mcclellan came a moment later i have not much news to tell you he said there has been a movement of troops across the potomac at edwards ferry under general stone and colonel baker is reported killed that is about all i can give you after ball's bluff the grumbling against inaction in the army of the potomac increased until public attention was suddenly distracted by an incident of an entirely new character and one which changed the discouragement of the north over the repeated military failures and the inactivity of the army into exultation this incident was the capture on november eighth by captain wilkes of the warship san jacinto of two confederate commissioners to europe messrs mason and slidell captain wilkes had stopped the british royal mail packet trent one day out from havana and taken the envoys with their secretaries from her it was not until november fifteenth that captain wilkes put into hampton roads and sent the navy department word of his performance of course the message was immediately carried to mr lincoln at the white house a few hours later benson j lossing called on the president and the conversation turned on the news mr lincoln did not hesitate to express himself i fear the traitors will prove to be white elephants he said we must stick to american principles concerning the rights of neutrals 
we fought great britain for insisting by theory and practice on the right to do exactly what captain wilkes has done if great britain shall now protest against the act and demand their release we must give them up apologize for the act as a violation of our doctrines and thus forever bind her over to keep the peace in relation to neutrals and so acknowledge that she has been wrong for sixty years as time went on lincoln had every reason to suppose that there was an overwhelming sentiment in the country in favor of keeping the commissioners and braving the wrath of england banquets and presentations votes of thanks by the cabinet and by congress all kinds of ovation were accorded captain wilkes during this excitement the president held his peace not even referring to the affair in the message he sent to congress on december third he was studying the situation before his inauguration he had said one day to seward one part of the business governor seward i think i shall leave almost entirely in your hands that is the dealing with those foreign nations and their governments now however he saw that he must exercise a controlling influence the person with whom he seems to have discussed the case most seriously was charles sumner the chairman of the senate committee on foreign relations sumner was one of the few men who had from the first believed in lincoln although himself most radical he had been appreciative of the president-elect's point of view and had seen in the interval between the election and the inauguration that as a matter of fact lincoln was on the essential question at issue firm as a chain of steel thus on january twenty sixth he wrote mr lincoln is perfectly firm he says that the republican party shall not with his assent become a mere sucked egg all shell and no meat the principle all sucked out although himself a most polished even a fastidious gentleman sumner never allowed lincoln's homely ways to hide his great qualities he gave him a respect and esteem at the start which others accorded only after experience the senator was most tactful too in his dealings with mrs lincoln and soon had a firm footing in the household that he was proud of this perhaps a little boastful there is no doubt lincoln himself appreciated this sumner thinks he runs me he said with an amused twinkle one day after the seizure of mason and slidell the president talked over the question frequently with sumner who had from the receipt of the news declared we shall have to give them up early in december word reached america that england was getting ready to go to war in case we did not give up the commissioners the news aroused the deepest indignation and the determination to keep mason and slidell was for a brief time stronger than ever common sense was doing its work however gradually the people began to feel that after all the commissioners were white elephants on december nineteenth the administration received a notice that the only redress which would satisfy the british government would be the liberation of the four gentlemen and their delivery to the british minister at washington and a suitable apology for the aggression which had been committed in the days which followed while the secretary of state was preparing the reply to be submitted sumner was much with the president we have the senator's assurance that the president was applying his mind carefully to the answer so that it would be essentially his it is evident from sumner's letter that lincoln was resolved that there should be no war with england 
thus on december twenty third sumner wrote to john bright with whom he maintained a regular correspondence your letter and also cobden's i showed at once to the president who is much moved and astonished by the english intelligence he is essentially honest and pacific in disposition with a natural slowness yesterday he said to me there will be no war unless england is bent upon having one it was on christmas day that seward finally had his answer ready it granted the british demand as to the surrender of the prisoners though it refused an apology on the ground that captain wilkes had acted without orders after the paper had been discussed by the cabinet but no decision reached and all of the members but seward had departed lincoln said according to mr frederick seward governor seward you will go on of course preparing your answer which as i understand it will state the reasons why they ought to be given up now i have a mind to try my hand at stating the reasons why they ought not to be given up we will compare the points on each side but the next day after a cabinet meeting at which it was decided finally to return the prisoners when secretary seward said to the president you thought you might frame an argument for the other side mr lincoln smiled and shook his head i found i could not make an argument that would satisfy my own mind he said and that proved to me that your ground was the right one lincoln's first conclusion was the real ground on which the administration submitted we must stick to american principles concerning the rights of neutrals the country grimaced at the conclusion it was to many as chase declared it was to him gall and wormwood lowell's clever verse expressed best the popular feeling we give the critters back john cause abram thought twas right it warn't your bullying clack john provokin us to fight the decision raised mr lincoln immeasurably in the view of thoughtful men especially in england if reparation were made at all of which few of us felt more than a hope wrote john stuart mill we thought that it would be made obviously as a concession to prudence not to principle we thought that there would have been truckling to the newspaper editors and supposed fire-eaters who were crying out for retaining the prisoners at all hazards we expected everything in short which would have been weak and timid and paltry the only thing which no one seemed to expect is what actually happened mr lincoln's government have done none of these things like honest men they have said in direct terms that our demand was right that they yielded to it because it was just that if they themselves had received the same treatment they would have demanded the same reparation and if what seemed to be the american side of the question was not the just side they would be on the side of justice happy as they were to find after their resolution had been taken that it was also the side which america had formerly defended is there any one capable of a moral judgment or feeling who will say that his opinion of america and american statesmen is not raised by such an act done on such grounds before the trent affair was settled another matter came up to distract attention from mcclellan's inactivity and to harass mr lincoln this time it was trouble in his official family mr cameron his secretary of war had become even more obnoxious to the public than fremont or mcclellan like seward cameron had been one of lincoln's competitors at the chicago convention in eighteen sixty 
his appointment to the cabinet however had not been made like seward's because of his eminent fitness it was one case in which a bargain had been made before the nomination this bargain was not struck by mr lincoln but by his friend and ablest supporter at chicago judge david davis there was so general a belief in the country that cameron was corrupt in his political methods that when it was noised that he was to be one of lincoln's cabinet a strong effort was made to displace him it succeeded temporarily the president-elect withdrawing the promise of appointment after he had made it such pressure was brought to bear however that in the end he made judge davis's pledge good and gave the portfolio of war to mr cameron the unsatisfactory preliminaries to the appointment must have affected the relations of the two men cameron's enemies watched his administration with sharp eyes and not long after the war began commenced to bring accusations of maladministration to the president the gist of them was that contracts were awarded for politics sake and that the government was being swindled wholesale we hear said the evening post in june of knapsacks glued together and falling to pieces after the first day's use of uniform coats which are torn to pieces with a slight pull of the fingers of blankets too small if they were good and too poor stuff to be useful if they were of the proper size shoes caps trousers coats all are too often of such poor material that before a soldier is ready for service he must be clothed anew end of section five